Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back. We are officially launching episode 39 of She Dynasty today. And I can't believe we're almost at 40. It's almost a milestone. So very exciting. Um, I want to remind everyone, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on Instagram at she underscore dynasty. Today, we will be interviewing Sandra Dewey, the president of business operations at Warner Media Entertainment. Sandra is currently focused on launching the highly anticipated streaming service, HBO Max, while she continues to oversee cable networks such as TBS, TNT, and True TV. Sandra is also a strong advocate for gender and diversity initiatives and founded Warner Media's Feminist Fridays. Welcome, Sandra. Hi, it's so nice to be here. I know. It seems like we have some friends in common. We do. One of my favorite people. Yes. Lisa Pinto, who was another uh, guest on She Dynasty. And I will tell you that um, her episode is one of my most downloaded. So I love that. Just knowing that you are such good friends with her tells me so much about you already. So I'm excited to dig in and get to know you a little bit better. Well, thank you. So tell us, where are you originally from? Well, I grew up in a small town in Northern California, and I do think that that small town upbringing really set the stage for many things in my career that were sort of differentiating because I think as I've come to build um, a level of seniority and success in my career, I am predominantly surrounded by super ambitious people who were focused early on. And that was not my story at all. I mean, um, you know, I grew up in a really community oriented place where to be highly ambitious might have even be viewed with a certain level of suspicion, because the priorities were really about, you know, what kind of person are you? And there was this equalizer of if you're, you know, doing any job, but you're doing it honestly, and you're a good member of the community, that's what we aspire to. So that was wonderful in certain ways. But it also was kind of circumscribing in terms of I was never taught to reach high or aspire high. My parents wanted me to go to schools close to home and that kind of thing. And so it wasn't until a bit later in my life that I realized there was a whole big world out there filled with opportunities and ones that I would really enjoy. I think that's really encouraging for people to hear. You don't have to be this like crazy, passionate, driven child to be successful when you grow up. Yeah, I was a really late arriver at that bus stop, I have to say. Um, I feel now, even though I'm fairly advanced in my career, I still would describe myself now as a very ambitious person, and I like challenges, and I want to keep growing. But I don't think I got to the point where that is the mentality um, and the philosophy that I embraced until I was, you know, midway through my career, and certain things triggered that in me. Right. So where did you go to, um, to undergrad? I went to undergrad at a state school, CSU Sacramento, Mm -hmm. and then I went to law school at UC Davis, both of which were uh, local schools for me. You know, the the town where I grew up was called El Dorado Hills, which is a little bit to the northeast of Sacramento and beneath South Lake Tahoe. So your family just wanted you to stay close. Yeah. My whole, I I had one conversation with my dad about college. Um, I came home and I said, dad, there's a counselor at school who thinks that I should apply to some, you know, and, and I did nothing against my high school, but you know, there wasn't a big, it wasn't a community where there was a lot of pressure to go to big schools. Um, but I came home and said, you know, the college counselor had encouraged me to look at some schools and my dad literally turned around in his chair and said, you're going to Sac State. And that was driven by his desire, his predominant desire to keep my sister and myself close by. Love it. And so what was the spark to want to go to law school after that? Well, I aspired um, to go to law school based on, I didn't know one person who was a lawyer. So my sense of what it meant to be a lawyer was all from reading books. I was a crazy read a book or two a week reader. And I intuitively, you know, understood that that sort of thing would be something that was a fit for what my skills were. I thought, Um, because I didn't have a very sophisticated knowledge of the breadth of what you can do with a law degree, but I thought I would be a criminal lawyer. And it wasn't until I started law school my first year and found out that there was this wide array 
of possibilities, including, which was so far-fetched to me that at the time, good law students were very sought after and the big law firms would come and recruit you and sort of wine and dine you. And when I heard that, I was like, wow. And I went home and I told my father, who was who was a little bit concerned because, as I said, we didn't know any lawyers and he had this sense of um, there being an overpopulation of lawyers and that it might be hard to actually uh-huh. get a job. So when I went home in my first year of law school, I said, dad, you know, these big law firms are going to come and, you know, if I get good grades, they're going to offer me big job and compete for me. And my dad said, who told you that? You'll believe anything. (laughs) But it turns out I was correct. So after law school, you moved to Los Angeles. Why? Why the big shift? Well, it's a little embarrassing to admit this, but I think it's important to tell your real stories. Um, I had what was that juncture, which really was, you know, determinative of my whole future that followed. I would never have done that on my own. And I, <laughs> I accepted a summer clerkship at a law firm in Los Angeles between my second and third year of law school because I had a boyfriend at the time who was like, let's get out of Dodge, you know, let's look at big cities. And I considered law firms in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, and I had no personal viewpoint about any of that, nor did I intend to actually move anywhere. I was like sort of indulging him and I thought it was a summer experience. Uh And so I came down and worked for a big law firm here in Los Angeles for the summer and really had my, at that delayed point in my life, I had my first experience away from home. So it was kind of a mini version of my girls gone wild that summer. I was like, wow, okay, so this is what it's like to be away from, you know, this very safe but controlled universe of my family and friends I've had my entire life. So, and and they offered me a job at the end of the summer, which I reflected on not at all and immediately said yes to, not realizing that that would in fact change my entire world and my life. And it and I was really, you know, glib about it because it did take me a couple years once I actually moved here to realize the drastic difference between right. my life as I'd known it and what I had stepped into. But it also, you know, set the course of what was to come. Well, if it makes you feel any better, many of the women who've been on She Dynasty have said that they have changed um, cities because um, a, a man has inspired them to do so. So you're not alone there. So um, you started as a corporate lawyer, and you mentioned in your pre-interview that you weren't very good at it. Um, tell us how. Um, tell us why you weren't very good at it, or why you thought you weren't very good at it. I think I now I have the self confidence to say this. At the time that it was playing out, no one was more surprised than me that I wasn't my smartest, best self. And the truth of the matter was, and I think this is a really important point for people early on in their career. It wasn't a good match for me. I was frankly bored with the work that I was doing, and that's nothing against that type of work. You just have to be the kind of person who finds that fascinating, which I did not. I was extremely self-critical at the time. I was like, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I would spend hours reading these filings, security filings, and I'd be thinking about other things and realize I'd been turning pages for two hours. And I was just perpetually working against myself. And um, I just really believed during that period of my life, I was you know, faded in some terrible way because I was also the kind of person that was really reluctant to make big changes. You know, I'd gone down this path, ended up at this good law firm, and I was very reluctant to declare um, that it wasn't working or it was a failure. Um, I did have a very unusual experience in the middle of my, you know, five years or five and a half hour long I was at my firm um, in that Michael Jackson came to our firm as a client and I spent um, a couple years working for him. And that was obviously a big aberration for what it's normally like to practice corporate law at a big law firm. And I got to travel with him and do all kinds of other fun things. So that was a fabulous... How many how many years did you spend working with him? I think... Um, in total, it was three, roughly, and I spent probably two where I worked only for him. Wow, like um, exclusively for him. Yeah, it was a crazy period. He was, it, it's hard to, so much transpired since then, obviously, with him, um, including, you know, his death and the accusations right. and all that kind of stuff. But so it's hard to turn back our minds to a time where his career was actually on the ascent and not, you know, immersed in everything that came after. But the day he came to our law firm, 
he became the biggest client of the firm and, you know, this huge amount of files. I think there was like 1,200 files or something that arrived that day. And there was a team of people who were put on to service his work. And I just had a teeny little piece of it. But in the world of people that represented Michael, his management team that was around, they became impatient with a lot of the different people they had to contend with. And despite my role as a junior lawyer, my skill set in terms of navigating the people and the politics of that particular group of people elevated me very quickly so that I became a point person. And the senior lawyer at our firm, Bert Fields, Michael Jackson was actually his client. You know, he he spotted that very early on and he said, Sandra is going to, you know, sort of take on this outsized responsibility, which was both exciting and you can imagine created some... Um, antagonism in the law firm but law firms are very hierarchical organizations they don't they don't like you to jump the line you mentioned that you experienced some crazy sexism and harassment during this time is that um at this job well yes yes i mean i looking back on it now it's funny while it was happening um i think like many women um i didn't dwell on it i believed all of these different things that happened um were just, you know, what you had to contend with in order Correct. to move forward. And it was it was a question of just managing it, managing it, managing it, which I did and moved on. It really, like many other women, it really wasn't till the last few years. And for me, it wasn't even the um, beginning of the Me Too movement. It was really watching Hillary Clinton as a candidate mm-hmm. in the presidential race and the just crazy level of sexism she was subjected to it really started triggering all these memories of, for me that I hadn't thought about in years and years and years of things that had happened and going back and revisiting them in my mind and realizing how wildly bad it was right. and how wrong it was. Yeah, I think about it a lot too in my career, how many moments where I can remember you know, incidents of sexism and, or harassment. And I feel like if I would have spent all that time dealing with it, it would have taken a huge Um, part of my focus off what my goals were because there was so much of it and so it's interesting to hear you say that because I also kind of reflect reflect back to like my earlier years and all the things that I had to deal with and I think that the time we make choices right okay that happened no big deal look the other way or oh he's just that guy or you know we just make those kind of decisions but if you think about it now like if in today's world is it, you know, is it appropriate, like, every time it happens, and obviously people are much more aware, so hopefully they're doing it less, um, you know, to to focus on it every time it happens? Well, I think there's a nuance to this that, that we haven't spoken about, which is this. I think people, humans, certainly women, have a very strong intuitive sense of something, and that's, I can tell you for sure, during those years when I was at my law firm, if I chose to fight those battles, I wouldn't have won. I would have lost. And and the system was not at a place where systemic change was going to happen and no one was interested in it. The power balance and the established codes of behavior, everyone was operating within them. You know, the men were allowed to behave that way. It didn't affect their career at all. If you made a lot of noise, it would impact your career. And I think we all have a sense of that. You choose the battles. I think, you know, all these incredible women that I have the good fortune to work with now, Everyone's ready to step up. No one is afraid of the fight. But you're not going to fight the battles you can't win, and you're and you're wasting your energy if you're not going to advance the cause, the environment. If you're if you're really not going to precipitate change, you're just hitting your head against the wall. As much as we all want to always be on the side of right and wrong, there's no point in blooding yourself to no end. You know. So I think that's why people, I think we all understood at that point in time, you know, we could have fought all we wanted, but the system wasn't ready for change. I think it is now, which is really encouraging. Yes. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you worked with Michael Jackson for a long time. Um, How would you characterize him, your experience with him overall? Was it positive during the time you worked with him? Well, if you're talking about was my experience with Michael personally positive, um, I mean, the experience was extraordinary because not only did I get to live in this universe, which was truly an alternative world, and I was part of, ultimately, um, I was part of a big world tour that went on for two years, and I did travel with him for part of that time. And so that was extraordinary life experience. I also met 
the man who became the father of my children. He's now my ex, but anyway, obviously a very important part right. of my life and mm-hmm. utterly cliche. He was in the band, but whatever. <laughs> um, so that was really life altering for me, but probably most importantly for me personally, um, it was the thing that prompted me to see that perhaps I had a greater life purpose than staying at my law firm and doing work that I wasn't satisfied by because I got to bear witness to all of these people who were doing what they were meant to do, who were either really born to play music or sing or dance or orchestrate music. And they were watching people, you know, living their true lives, not to be corny, really forced me into an epiphany I would not otherwise have had. And I said to myself, well, clearly I'm not going to do any of those things, but don't I owe it to myself to try to figure out where I will feel inspired and more passionate. And that was, you know, what prompted me to do what was super scary for me, which was to, you know, step out of the nest of um, my law firm, which at the time was all I knew. Right. And so you also mentioned in your pre-interview that one of your snags was that you felt that you failed at the law firm. And so um, how did you fail in your mind? Well, because if you're sort of, uh, I, I just described myself to my 16-year-old this morning as a nerdy bo- bookworm. I was com- contrasting her father, who is, you know, extremely artistic and hopelessly groovy. And I was saying, so you have these two sides influencing you. Um, you know, you have your groovy dad and then your, you know, nerdy bookworm mom. You know, I was someone who was very accustomed to getting good grades and doing well. And and because I like academic type challenges, I was surprised that, you know, I was facing difficulty in being extraordinary at the law firm. Now I'm much more forgiving. First of all, I don't consider it a failure at all. Because a lot of the challenges weren't academic challenges. Well, it was related to, you know, to succeed in the job that I had. Right. It would be, if you're the kind of person who could every single day study for a very hard exam and get an A, even if you found the subject matter to be utterly uninteresting, Uh then that was the job for you. I mean, because I was ill-suited for it. I wasn't. I needed to be engaged. And the fact that, you know, when I was in law school, even, I found that a lot of people hate law school. I loved law school. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating. So, you know, I just never had those struggles. And then here I was being asked to do these things, read and write and spend hours doing it about something that was, you know, securities filings, which for me just were, there was nothing there to get a hook into. Mm -hmm. And But now I realize, you know, the insight I gained from not feeling accomplished in that job. And, um, you know, that was the prompt. It was like the one step back that allows you the six steps forward. And it 100% was that for me. And even now, as I spend a lot of time talking to and counseling younger executives at my company, I see the value of having lived an experience that wasn't ideal, because then you really appreciate when you get closer to the sun, when you're in the right place. And I have really understood that distinction. Sometimes with young people who don't have a breadth of experience, they, they don't have a measuring stick by which to judge how good or not good they have it or, you know, and I, I felt like I had that in, um, stark relief based on the contrast of not only the jobs, but how I did in them, right. you know. So you had a big shift after that. You decided to shift out and work for an entertainment company. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually took a pay cut to do this, which I think is fascinating because this is also another pattern that I see with so many of the women who I interview. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just like a boldness and you're brave enough to understand that sometimes to take two steps forward, you have to take a step back. So talk to us about that decision. Well, it was funny. I decided the entirety of my analysis was that I love the movies, therefore maybe I would enjoy mm-hmm. being a movie lawyer. Right. That was it. <laughs> and so, and I only applied for one job. I went on a series of interviews at Warner Brothers, which is funny because now I work so closely with all the people at Warner Brothers. But I went on a series of interviews with Warner Brothers um, for a job that really required an experienced person. And I was not a trained movie lawyer. And so they were so great with me. And they said, we really see potential in you. But ultimately, we need someone who actually knows how to do this work. So they hired someone else. When this movie company that was owned by Ted Turner called Turner Pictures was formed, the gentleman based in Atlanta who was sort of charged with hiring the team 
he called his former employers at Warner Brothers and said, I'm going to hire people. Do you have anyone? And they said, you should call Sandra Dewey. So it was from that one um, job interview and the fact that they remembered me and I made an impression on them, even though they didn't hire me, that I got this job at Turner. And when I went to interview for that job, I sat down, I had bought my first house. And so I had a mortgage for the first time and I did this you know, calculation, how much money do I have to earn? And I had a hard and fast number. Uh-huh. And um, I think, I guess it doesn't matter. It's only my personal information. I was making at the time, uh, this was many years ago, but I was making $140,000 at my law firm. And I knew I had to make $100,000 or I couldn't pay sustain your life right Right. so when I they flew me back to Atlanta and I interviewed with a bunch of people and then they called me and at the end of the day the general counsel said you know we'd like to hire you and um, we rarely do this on the same day but you know everyone would really like to have you and we'd like to offer you $90,000 oh boy and so but it was the clarity is such a beautiful thing it's a gift you know I I said to him I go well I would really be delighted to accept but I can't accept less than $100,000, which is already a significant pay cut for me. And I think he was startled because I was really a very, I was being hired into a really junior position. And he's like, well, Sandra, you know, you'll have an opportunity to work your way up. And I was like, oh, well, I appreciate that. But I can't accept your offer. I just did not budge. And so ultimately they agreed. And he said to me, well, if this is a sign of your negotiating, we're in good shape. But <laughs> we're in good shape. He said yeah, that. Yeah. I love that. But let me be clear, like many women, I have, my track record is much more that I've been a failure at negotiating for myself. Mm-hmm. I think even really good negotiators, and I would count myself as one of them, are very typically poor in advocating for themselves. And I have to really follow my own advice that I give other people in terms of having clarity about what I'm worth and being willing to fight for that because it, it does not come easily in the way it does when you're advocating for someone else. So that was that was an exception, but it came from just having utter clarity. That's what I needed. And even then, I really lived um, very, I know that's still a lot of money. I don't want to be insensitive to well, that. Not in but Los Angeles, it's it, so much. It, <laughs> in Los Angeles, right, yeah. because I literally beyond paying my for my mortgage and my car and my student loan, I had a very nominal amount right. of money that I lived on every right. month for a long time. So you got you got the amount that you wanted. I did. Awesome. I yeah. love to hear that. But when I was hired, there was three lawyers hired for that movie company. There was a senior lawyer, a mid-level lawyer. I was the junior lawyer. On the day I started, the Friday before they had fired the senior lawyer, and then the mid-level lawyer left within two or three months. So it was really being thrown into the deep end of the pool because I didn't have these teachers. Um, I really had to kind of jump in and figure be, it out and be scrappy. Yeah. And I worked with such a great group of people. There's nothing like a startup environment, which is exciting and fun within a big, stable company. That's kind of an ideal situation. And that's what that was. Amy Pascal, who went on to run Sony Pictures, mm-hmm. was the head of that group. And there was a woman named Christine Belson, who's a superstar, who's now head of Sony Animation. Mm-hmm. She was one of the um, development executives. It was a really great group, um, but disbanded after two and a half years. Okay. And after being an attorney for so long, when was it that you realized that people were not just looking for your opinion on contractual language and terms, but actual business insights? Was there kind of a moment in your career where you felt like people started to look at you differently and what you brought to the table? Well, I didn't think in those terms. You know, as I said, my ambition came really late, much later than the stage we're talking about. I mean, I was the only one of the executives, they said you're going to Warner Brothers. So I worked at Warner Brothers for a while, again, in the legal department. And, you know, that that was a really big contrast because Turner Pictures was this little startup with the same 11 people sitting around a table. And Warner Brothers is a big, you know, um, institution with right. a deep history and, you know, all kinds of siloed groups doing different things. And so that was a big change. But during the time that Turner Pictures was in existence, we coexisted with the television group. It was from that that the woman who ran the business affairs group had seen me and sort of had a sense of me. And she called and said, would you like to switch over to the business mm-hmm. side? And that's when I switched over to television. And I, and I went back to Turner. And really, it was the movement over to television but it was the first thing that really turned on my, you know, my enthusiasm to a totally different level because 
I still love the movies and I liked the movie business, but the television business is very fast paced and changing and evolving. It's never been the same from one year to the next since I've been in it. And I really did love making the business deals, which are so much about understanding the entire chessboard and with also, I think, the people who do it the best um, also have a keen sense of the psychology of people because you're, you're trying to understand what matters and what doesn't matter and find, at least to my mind, you know, find the deals that are good for both sides. And right. But there was a shift in how people kind of perceive the value you brought to the table because you went from being a lawyer to um, moving over to the business side of things. Yes. So how did that evolve? How did people to start seeing see that skill in you? And how did that evolve within yourself? Well, it is a different skill set, but I think the people who sensed I was capable of doing that were noticing things that I think um, lead to success as a deal maker. I think if you're, you know, there are people who can be exceptionally bright and are very good executors. You know, you put a task in front of them and they put their head down and they will deliver it to you in a well-accomplished way. And then there are people who are interested in the bigger picture and the context in which you're operating. And that that's when you really get people who can have a very nuanced approach to what they do, who can even go beyond the task they've been asked with and say, shouldn't we be thinking about this? Or, you know, and I, because I liked what I was doing and it was a really good match for the things that I do well, which is a critical point. You know, you can love something, but if you really, it's not a good match with what your skills and abilities are, it's much harder to succeed. But I was fortunate to find my way to a place where I both loved what I was doing and was really well suited in terms of the things I do best. And that allowed me to really um, escalate the pace at which I was succeeding. Beautiful. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you were part of a few mergers. Um, So how did you survive those mergers and continue to advance your careers? You know, it did happen to me twice where um, when the next merger happened, um, Time Warner merged with AOL. And shortly after that, there was significant layoffs that happened for the Los Angeles-based part of our Turner organization. And um, all of the senior, the big boss at my company, and then all of the department heads were systematically being laid off. And I had just recently been made the head of a department. That was a huge step forward for me. And I was like, oh, here, I hadn't even um, concluded my contract. So I was like, oh my God, am I going to get paid out? What's happening? But um, you just kind of have to sit around and see where the cards fall. Yeah. But I was the last one that they called in that day. And they sat down and they said, we're not sure what we're going to do with this original programming group, but we know we're going to have original programming and we want you to stay. And because you know, we, we think you'll only stay if we really broaden. I was at the time I was head of business affairs Mm -hmm. and they said, we're going to give you a broader scope. We're going to move all this other stuff under you as well. And I thought, "Hmm." wow. Okay. So that in your favor. Yeah. And, and really, of course, we immediately started to rebuild and they hired a new creative head. And, you know, it's again, another example of a moment where there's, you know, perhaps a step back, but precipitating a really much swifter movement forward that followed. So that was really good. But I have been a very solid performer. Mm -hmm. And I am someone who has always understood that contributing um, as a member of a team, that it's not about me individually, but, you know, the success of the entire team is something that I can contribute to and support. I think that helps. And I think, you know, having a strong sense of, I have always been a student of management. So I could be, even before I was a manager or a senior manager, I think I was paying attention to what it meant to do those things properly and well in a way that drove the business. And I think the people I work for always really appreciated that. What is your leadership style? Well, you know, I care a lot about leadership. I think it's I think it's undervalued in a lot of our institutions and I don't think it really matters how good any one individual is. You're not um, maximizing the potential of your company or your enterprise if you aren't in fact helping everyone that works there to work to their maximum potential and I understood that early on. So, I think one thing that is a pillar of sort of how I approach management and leadership is I have a fundamental understanding that 
if you're a person who's doing really good work, if you're a high potential, high performing person, you want your good work to be seen. It's part of the payoff is the recognition that someone is seeing your good work. And people often in these big corporations, they're doing great work and it just goes into the machine. And it's so sort they're of- not, They're not advocating for themselves or putting it in front of the right people. Or, or... They're, or they're, you know, someone said to me at a leadership thing that was very transformative for me in my career, there was a woman who was speaking to us and she said, many of you women are in your offices doing extraordinary work and you're hoping that someone is going to see it and that you're going to advance based on this great work you're doing. And she said, and I'm here to tell you, hope is not a strategy. And I was like, oh, I love that. And I said, hope is my strategy. <laughs> but then I realized, okay, that's not good. But what? But more importantly, as it applies to others, I know that when you as a manager stop and take the time to be aware of the people that work for you, and particularly the people who earn it, who are really doing good work, to be a partner with them in their career, to sit down and say, you are doing great work. I want you to know that I see it and you're contributing to this. And talk to me about where, what, what's your aspiration? Where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And you, if people feel like you are partnering with them, they will never leave your company mm-hmm. because that's all anyone wants is yeah. someone who is investing in them, who sees something in them. And so I know I didn't have that in all the early years of my career but I've done it enough for other people to know that a person who is performing at a seven starts performing at a 10 when you are paying attention and they want to please you with their work when they see that you you are watching. And even um, people really even want to hear when you say, look, you're great at many things and here's where I think you're getting in your own way. They're hungry for that feedback. Mm-hmm. They want to know someone is caring enough about them and investing in them to take the time to say, you know, here's where you need to build. You know, I'm someone who has really understood the obstacles for women and so, and has really made a concerted effort to look for ways to start breaking those doors down. And part of that is interactive with the women um, that I work with by saying, you need to understand these obstacles too. And you need to understand far earlier than I did how you can be slowed down in your in your progress forward that you've earned and that's not okay so let's look at those things so that you can address them or sidestep them or outsmart them or whatever it might need to be and i think having now in our i'm lucky enough at our organization we have a collective of really extraordinary women who are committed to this work both for you know gender um parity but also for people of color who are, you know, in many ways, subconscious ways, prohibited from, you know, having a level playing field. And it's not until people are really in there treating it as it should be, as a priority and making, um, you know, advocating for change. And how does someone on your team really impress you? Well, I can tell you, we have a super fast-paced environment. Like my days are typically overscheduled, I say with no pride whatsoever. And so people are coming in and out of my office one meeting after another. The people that I love and adore are the ones who are in my office with me and they walk out and a couple hours later, they've come back and said, I put together this chart. Here's what I think the logical steps are. Here's what I can take care of for you. And these are the calls I think you have to make. And then I'm like, fantastic. May God bless you. Okay. So in your pre-interview, you talked about how your industry is in the middle of a transformation. So we want to hear from your perspective what that means. Well, um, at a consumer level, I think we all know that there is this tremendous shift towards people walking away from what used to be scheduled television mm-hmm. at a certain hour on their TV or going each week and sitting down at 8 o'clock. And you know, that's been that's been a transformation that's been happening over time from you know, TiVo and VCRs and then video on demand. And now um, there's a whole shift in consumer behavior based on, and Netflix has really been the training ground predominantly about this, about people who are accustomed to going and turning on their television or their, you know, iPad or whatever they're watching on and being able to pull up exactly what they want and watching as many episodes as they want. On their own terms, right? Yes, on their own terms and an uninterrupted experience. And when you're streaming, you do watch different things and you watch differently. So it's adapting to that universe. In addition to that, the economics of what supported the television business, which has been 
you know, roughly half from advertising and half from the fees that people pay for their cable or satellite mm-hmm. service, you know, that's shifting. It's the business model around a streaming service is entirely different. It's subscription based. And so um, there's a huge examination of, you know, how do we make deals around the shows? How do we pay talent? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there used to be back ends that people participated in because you would show it on your cable network and then you would sell it in syndication if you had enough episodes and you would sell it mm-hmm. in the international market and you would go out on DVD and EST and all of that created a pot of money. That's well, interesting because... Um you have to navigate launching a streaming service while you pre- preserve the core business of Warner Media. So how do you kind of balance that? They're almost like contradictory in a sense. They are. And there's it, it is a challenge to have, you know, a strong footing in this new universe. And it really, I would say the majority of my time is spent kind of wrestling with these new challenges and trying to contribute to and make the right strategic decisions to build that business. So what does HBO need to do in order to compete with um, players like Netflix or Disney Plus? Well, there have been so few players so far. You know, there's Netflix and they have a certain, you know, approach to the streaming world. I mean, they have a very, very, very broad offering and obviously have the advantage of being just an early competitor in the space. And so there's sort of a a long lead that they have. And, you know, there's no denying there's many things that Netflix does well. And we are coming into this service with this tremendous, rich library. Um, We have all of the content from HBO. We have all of the just deep, rich... Um, stories from both the Warner Brothers Pictures library going back to Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and Gone with the Wind to, you know, the Joker right. or their most recent shows. And the same on the television side, you know, um, Friends and Big Bang Theory and going back in time. We also just made a really um, big deal with Sesame Street. Mm. So starting from preschool age through, you know, very adult content, we believe we're going to be delivering to you know, all of the audiences out there. And then when you add on top of that, the incredible new originals that we're making, and that's really the bread and butter of, you know, the group that I work with, the original programming group, we're going to launch with 50 new shows. And which is, yes, you have to just understand the work that goes into creating 50 different shows. There's going to be 30 new series. And then there's specials and documentaries and things and movies. So yeah, when we launch, there will be 50 originals on top of the library. You work across a multitude of content offerings, film, TV, news, sports, even podcasting. Mm -hmm. So which is your favorite? Which one are you the most excited about? Well, I was an early adopter of podcasts, so I have a love for podcasts for sure. And I'm very excited that we are now really getting into podcasting in a big way. So that excites me. But I think some of the deal making that I love is informed by what I like to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm a drama person. So the really deep, rich, character driven dramas are always exciting for me to work on. Are there any new or interesting technologies that might define the next phase of HBO Max? Well, we're really clear that for this to succeed, what we call the user interface, Mm -hmm. how the platform actually works for people is as critical as the content. If people are frustrated, if it's, you know, requires um, too much interaction before you actually get to what you're looking for, if the recommendation function isn't good, all of those things have to be right or people will reject. So there's a big focus on that. One of the things we found out from our extensive research is that you know people are a little bit frustrated with the algorithms on some of the other services. We're adding a dimension to it which is recommended by humans. And so there will be people who are recommending content so that people can hear other people say why they love certain things and can perhaps find someone who's taste or opinion they trust or just someone they like and that's another portal into finding stuff that you want to watch is there a show or two that you're excited about that are oh coming my up? gosh there's so many i can't even is there one that you can tell us about that you're super excited about well there are many 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 i sort of hate to pick one of the babies but we are doing a show called tokyo vice um with ansel elgort mm-hmm. and he this is his first foray into television and it's it, it's exciting on a couple levels um, Michael Mann, the big feature film director, is directing the pilot, and it's going to be filmed in Tokyo. Oh, wow. So I'm excited about that one. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears a little okay. bit. So you have been at the same company for 25 years, which is incredible. I love to hear this. 
in my industry in advertising, we talk about job jumping and how that propels you to, you know, to get to the next level faster. Do you believe in that philosophy or do you feel like building in one company and proving your worth and moving up is more valuable? I don't think there's any one way. Um, I do sort of bristle a little bit because I think there is a bias right now in a lot of industries, ours included, about job jumping. My recommendation to everyone is when you're making those decisions, you shouldn't be making them on a philosophical basis. I'm going to stay here forever or I'm going to jump around because I think that looks good. What you should be evaluating is, is the environment that you're currently working in one that is offering you a path for growth? and where you want to go every day. And you're learning from people. Because I see people all the time, I cannot tell you the regret that is expressed to me oftentimes, because people think that they're going to jump somewhere and that that, that's going to be um, an advancement. And sometimes it is. But what has been given short shrift is the part of us that's human nature that is sort of taken for granted Mm -hmm. the positives of a very um, supportive work environment with exciting work. You know, sometimes I think people get frustrated that their pace is too slow, and that can be legitimate. Only you can really decide. But you have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And having just experienced my 25th anniversary, it was really a moment of deep reflection for me. And I, you know, over the years, there was really only one or two times where I seriously considered leaving. And I think I've been subjected to some of that bias as a person who's been there for a really long time. But I can honestly say... I have been presented with new challenges over and over and over again. I've never been as stimulated or challenged by my work as I am right now, 20, 25 years in. Uh-huh. And at the same time, I have a I have a deep appreciation for all that is good about working for my company and with this part- particular group of just uber-talented people. So I don't take that for granted at all. You talk a lot in the pre-interview about being fascinated by the politics of power. Can you give us a specific instance or anecdote where you had to kind of navigate this a bit? I guess I see all these really extraordinary and talented women who are delivering day in and day out, who are moving the ball forward strategically, who are working to um, bring the best talent into the company, and yet have to continue to fight to be seen for consideration in the most Mm -hmm. senior roles. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, there are men who are put into really serious and high level positions based on their perceived potential. You know, it's not so much prove everything in advance. It's we see potential in you as a leader. And so I think that disparity is shifting, but it's also shifting behavior, I think, women are approaching their career advancement differently. There's a duality to doing your job extraordinarily well and fighting for change within your company. You know, for me, trying to take the stigma off of biases, which we all have and which are deeply rooted and say, these exist, let's acknowledge them and try to deconstruct from there so that we can really create you know, the workforce we want, um, which reflects society and the most talented people. Um, and which will, I think, drive the business, there's a real delicacy to that dance. Was there a boss that you had in your life that um, either inspired you in a positive way or that was a tricky boss that you had to navigate that taught you a big lesson that you carried forward? I did have a tricky boss um, early on in my career who happened to be a woman. And she was very, very smart, but she was also gave me a working template of many things that I um, did not want to do or be. And, and, um, so in a way, you know, even those hard experiences are a gift. And when people come to me now, sometimes people in our organization come to me and they say, this person, their boss, you know, this person's so unfair. I don't want to report to this person. You know, I say, it's really easy to be great when you work for a great boss. I've had some bosses in my life that have actually made me cry. But to your point, Um, what was really great about those bosses is I took mental note of what I didn't want to do and made sure that, you know, I wasn't that kind of leader in my own company. I would say the person um, that has really had a profound influence on me is um, not a boss, but a colleague of mine right now. Um, I work with a woman named Sarah Aubrey, who's the content head for HBO Max. We have a shared commitment to all of these issues that we're talking about, about leadership, about 
um, trying to work for true equal opportunity for people in the company. Personally, as someone who's had many career highlights and moments, I mean, you know, we talked about my Michael Jackson period. And during the time I've been at Warner Media, I've got to work on lots of really big, fun projects with exciting talent. But it's funny to me that in the relatively short period of time I've worked with Sarah, she's delivered to me probably three of the highlight moments of my entire career. Mm -hmm. And that's just really saying something about a person, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that you're passionate about helping um, the advancement of others, um, especially women. So we have a shared passion there. And I understand there's some things that you do at your office to support that. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, there's a, people really pay attention to what started off as a very informal thing, our Feminist Fridays group. But um, that really came in the very brief period after the election where I think people were experiencing a lot of confusion over what was happening in the world and what changes were afoot, what it meant for women. And so, you know, I had noticed a lot of women were wearing like political t-shirts under their suits and things like that. And so, oh, interesting. yeah, including me, by mm -hmm. the way, <laughs> there was a lot of sort of, um, just a huge need to kind of express how you felt. Yes. There was, a, there was a lot of like stealth activism right. happening. People didn't know where to put their feelings. And so I just decided let's have a tea party, like a proper tea party, and we'll invite all the women, and it'll be an opportunity for people to express how they're feeling. So we had this feminist tea party, and it was just like one of the all-time great events. Everyone came, and You had people, a huge turnout, I'm sure. We had a huge turnout. We did. We had everyone write on a sticky their feminist icon, and we covered this wall with all these colored stickies with our you know, icons, and we just mostly opened up this really deep and profound conversation that day where people were really sharing about what they were experiencing, past work hurdles that they had, the senior women really shared. And so we left that day saying, let's have an informal wink towards Fridays as a time where we share information. So we, there was a newsletter that was created. We have a um, Feminist Friday newsletter that's put together that has, you know, articles or information. And we have events and gatherings. And it's really a way for us to to touch base with each other, to share our wisdom, to show our support, but mostly for people to know that they are, as they are operating in this world and trying to build our careers and succeed, that we're in it together, where they're supporting each other. You're not doing it alone. And you're doing it with other people who are, you know, betting on you and there to help you. And I think there's a real empowerment that comes from that. Beautiful. Okay, we're going to go into what I call the rapid fire questions. Okay. So what keeps you up at night? politics and worrying about my teenagers. If you could completely switch careers, what would you do? Run for office. If you were going to give your younger self um, some pointers, what would one great piece of advice be? Oh gosh, it's so trite, but you know, I was plagued with self-doubt and I was so self-critical and now I just see with clarity what nonsense that is, that accepting yourself and being positive with yourself, it all starts there. What is your greatest strength? empathy. What is your biggest weakness? Probably the same. Love that. And if you could have one skill set that you don't have that you were a master at, what would it be? I, it'd be nice if I could sing. I can't That's a very common answer. I, I can't carry a tune, which is very common sometimes, answer. sometimes embarrassing. <laughs> I love when I find patterns. That's yeah. probably my most popular answer. Mm -hmm. With the knowledge that you've learned so far, how have your goals shifted or have they? I no longer measure my success based on what rung of the ladder I'm on, you know, what title I have. I mean, I still aspire to those things. I'd like to, you know, run everything one day. But what I really measure my success by now and what gives me the most satisfaction is understanding that through years of hard work and credibility that I can be a person of influence. And when I see that I can contribute in ways that result in constructive change, either on a big level or on an individual level, that I can change the course in some small way of how an individual is proceeding, or I can change our company, the future for women at the company in some small way. That's what really gives me the most satisfaction now. So what's next for you, Sandra Dewey? Well, I hope we launch the service in a huge way. And I I, I, listen to me shooting a hole in my own hope is not a strategy. <laughs> but it would be nice if all of the really great work that I think I'm doing 
and members of my team are doing are recognized. I'd love to continue to advance within my own company. But, you know, I am just, my fascination with the world has gotten bigger as I've gotten older. Like I said, if for some reason I was, you know, forced out of the nest at this company that I've been at for a really long time, you know, there's there's um, a real need for societal change. And so even though I never thought about running for office, never, ever, ever, um, I am really of the mindset that people who are courageous and would fight for the truth and for the greater good in society that don't have an agenda, that aren't looking to get elected the next time or for a certain amount of money, those kinds of people who have the ability to be true truth tellers, I think there's a need for that. And we see lots of courageous women entering that world. And I think, you know, that's something I think about. Great. And my final question is, do you have any actionable advice for women who are listening? Well, I think we have a tendency to focus on all of these different building blocks, you know, but I think the real tool that sets you up for success is internal work. And two things in particular, one of which is it's much harder than it sounds, is listening to yourself. Understanding what you love and what you're good at is the best work you can do to set yourself up for your career, number one. But beyond that, I think people don't give enough weight to how much it helps you no matter what your field is. If you take the time to be still to understand the environment you're walking into. What will it take to succeed with this group of people in this environment? And that requires some um, period of reflection and study on your part. You Mm -hmm. don't need to come in and be balls to the wall on day one. You know, you can come in and say, because succeeding at one place is not the same as succeeding at the next. And, you know, and I think that that has really helped me because I've always done that. I've wanted to understand the organism before I could understand how I could succeed within it. I think that's really great advice. You know, when I hire a new employee, for me, the ones that are the most successful are the ones that come in, kind of absorb our culture and how we work first. Mm -hmm. And then once they start to build the trust, the ones that come in and immediately want to change everything, that that never goes well. So I think that's really great advice. Well, thank you for the great work you're doing for all of us women who love to listen, hear, and learn from everyone else's story. I mean, there's always something to learn. I really appreciate it. Every single interview is different. You know, I sit here and I think about all the things that I'm learning from you. And the one thing I want to tell you, Sandra, is um, I know a few people in your industry and and your, your reputation, the way that people speak about you and how thoughtful you are and the incredible work that you're doing is so, so inspiring. So Really kudos to you for all that you've accomplished and super excited excited to see what happens with HBO Max and what you do next. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much.